Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. Andy, I think the thing with this trailer is, and maybe why people had trouble with it, is there's a hint that Uhura and Scooty are in a relationship. <laughs> you think that's what the problem was? I think that's where the whole thing started. I don't think anybody saw that coming, and they couldn't quite get it. 
It was a snowball effect from there. <laughs> it's exactly what it was. The snowball effect of the scooty Uhura. The Uhura. Well, it, it was like you know, taking fan fiction to the next level. You've got Uhura and Scooty together. You've <laughs> got right. Captain Chekhov. Oh. There's, there's. <laughs> they get, it becomes more and more fan fiction as we go along. Oh. That's exactly oh, what it is. Goodness, that is what happened. These, all of these movies. Wow. The, what do you, uh, so what do you think about the trailer? Does it, does it, my question for you was, does it, this time, does it finally give away too much? Or do you think, oh no, it's so great, it's perfect? I don't. I I didn't think it gave too much away as far as because uh, your your concern was it gave too much away of the re- the family relationship between Spock and Cybok. Spock will have to go back to uncover a secret, and he holds the baby shadow, the little little. <laughs> it does Come show on. the baby shadow, uh, but but it's like I, I don't know. I was a little torn if it gave too much away because it's like you know that it's a Vulcan you know that somehow it's connected to Spock's past but it didn't say how and you're right maybe showing the baby shadow was a little too much but all right I don't know I didn't think it was too problematic um and you know it it set the story up well it's it's it, it seemed to really focus the story on on uh, a lot of Vulcans like everybody seemed concerned about Vulcans in the trailer well, that's good because there are a lot of Vulcans to be concerned about. No, mm-hmm. there are a few Vulcans and they should be concerned about a lot. Yes. There should be a high degree of concern spread over a few Vulcans. That's what I mean to say. The trailer also seems to emphasize the, <laughs> the humor factor. To its credit? Did you hear that question mark? <laughs> question mark? <laughs> well, uh, it's interesting because Paramount apparently pushed them to uh, to put comedy in at every opportunity because they felt that the comedy in Star Trek Four was one of the things that that turned it into the profit uh, center that it was. So they said, every chance you have, put more humor in it, and that was the edict given to the writers on this one, and they took it to heart. <laughs> As it turns out, a lesson uh, was learned by all. Do you think the studio learned? Anything? No, I, I don't. Uh, well, <laughs> perhaps. Uh, and that uh, for that, we will wait until we'll table for next week. Um, but I, I do think that, well, I'm just going to say it, and then we're going to move on. I believe that this film is, in some part, unjustly maligned by Star Trek fans, and I'm not going to hang my whole reputation on making that case but I was deeply surprised at how much I enjoyed the movie. Now, to the point of the trailer, the trailer did not get me there. <laughs> the trailer definitely does not take you to that special does place. Does not take you to the special place. <laughs> Only Scooty Uhura can do that. <laughs> From a relaxing vacation on Earth. Greetings, Captain. I do not think you realize the gravity of your situation. <laughs> To the most perilous reaches of space. Only one crew dare travel where no man has ever gone before. We'll need all the power you can muster, mister. On a desolate planet, a renegade Vulcan seeks ultimate knowledge. To find it, we'll need a starship. And he will stop at nothing to get it. I dreamt that a madman had taken over the Enterprise. You look like you've just seen a ghost. 
perhaps I have, Captain. Our destination is the planet Shakari, Eden, at the center of the galaxy. The center of the galaxy can't be reached. If you ask me, and you haven't, I think this is a terrible idea. We're bound to bump into the Klingons. Remain on course. To Kirk. He's a fanatic to be fought. You know we'll never make it through the Great Barrier. I say that danger is an illusion. To the crew, he's a mystic to be followed. Cyborg has simply put us in touch with feelings that we've always been. I have to get back to the transporter. To Spock, he's the past he must confront. Shoot him! You know I'm right. Spock, my only concern is getting the ship back. And you're either with me or you're not. Put him in the brig with Captain Kirk. I'm a prisoner on my own ship. This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, Shatner Takes the Wheel, with the fifth entry into the Star Trek series, 1989's The Final Frontier. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you are a regular listener of the show and you're interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page. Get the good stuff, like access to the show Drafts podcast feed, our exclusive Saturday matinee show only available to Patreon members, and more. Just head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel and donate. We appreciate the support. Star Trek V, Andy, unjustly maligned. I said it. Do you agree? <gasps> Well, I've been telling you from the beginning that this was your favorite. <laughs> uh, you have been telling me that. You uh, have been sorry. telling me that. <laughs> Go ahead, because I know this was, I, I really, I feel like, in fact, this is, there is a contender for your favorite Star Trek film in The Final Frontier. You think so, huh? Mm -hmm, because of all that humor, that juicy, juicy uh, humor. The juicy humor, Uhura's fan dance. Mm -hmm. There's a lot going on in here to love, Pete. Andy. It's a pool table that's a pool. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> Am I right? I, oh, you are so right. <laughs> but you know, you you are right in the fact that I watched this and I'm like, what is going on? As bad as so much of it is, I really loved everything else. Like, I was really shocked because <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> There's a really, really good Star Trek movie in here. It's just buried under a bunch of bad stuff, unfortunately. I think it got off to the the wrong start, um, and I think it just it just didn't get the support it needed, and I think it just kind of fell apart, unfortunately. But there's a lot of the the core of it. I think is is great. I I think it's a it's a story that uh, I don't know if it was necessarily ahead of its time. Uh, but but maybe not just of its time. Uh, you know, think about how appropriate a story like this is today, right? A messianic leader who comes with great grand promises of salvation and uh, through just sheer force of will is able to uh, amass enough of a following to uh, take hold of great power and uh, then only to discover that it was just a uh, a, a skeptic's um, dream come true, that it was all uh, just uh, a fraud. Uh, whoa, and... whoa. Are, are you talking about Oprah? <laughs> <laughs> I Andy? feel like there's a connection to something going on in the present you day. You read me like a book, Andy. <laughs> like a book. 
This is what I'm saying. Like, I watched this movie and I thought, wow, it, it, this is... Uh, it, this is amazingly resonant if you if you just peel away the stuff that you don't like. So uh, the the cultural um, sort of from a cultural angle, I think this movie actually really does hold up. And you could take that story, like we said about Khan, like one of the things that makes the movie so great is you can take it out of the starship and you can put it in a wholly different context. And this is an interesting story. Right. I, I get there are elements of it that I think are ridiculous elements of it. I think are unneeded. But that part of it, I really celebrated this time. Now, it's also the the production design, the art design. I mean, we're seeing more and more of the, the Michael Okuda uh, des led design uh, that really comes out in, in uh, obviously uh, Next Generation. But, uh, you know, this was his second film on Trek. You can feel the art design kind of come, come around. The ship design, the general feel and substance of the Enterprise uh, is this is entering an era of my favorite sort of existence in the space uh, of Star Trek. Uh, and so, um, you know, I feel like we've sort of grown into it. It is a different bridge again, uh, which is enormously frustrating since we only had the bridge of the Enterprise, you know, for like a minute in the last movie. And yet they changed it this time. I don't get it. <laughs> Uh, but it was very frustrating. What's fascinating about it is watching the the behind the scenes stuff and hearing interviews with Harve and with uh, with Shatner. Uh, I feel like I actually liked this movie even more than they did. Yeah, right. <laughs> like they're all just sort of uh, yeah, Star Trek Five. You know, there are a lot of problems with it. But you well, know, I think I, I think Shatner time. seems to like it. I think he's the one who is the yeah. kind of the holdout saying. <laughs> Yes. Hey, I kind of like it. But Ralph Winter, I mean, he's one of the executive producers, and he's just like, hey, I've always been an even number guy. Yeah, <laughs> so, right. Geez, these are your movies, dude. These are your movies, man. <laughs> terrible. No, th that's terrible. And, and to your point, Shatner's, uh, did you see his joyful act of creation speech? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. he, it, where he says, he says, you know, this is, I am great at denial. When stuff's going wrong, <laughs> I, can, I can move right through it. This was... During the process, this was a joyful act of creation. We all had a really good time doing it, and and really, it's a gift of hindsight. I get the feeling that they just they they're able to see where things went south. And to all of their credit, uh, they have the same problems with it that I do. That is something. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any reason to talk about Klingons? I loved these Klingons. Like these are like some of my favorite Klingons to watch. I thought they like these two like kind of character actors who came onto this movie took it to heart like whole hog to be <laughs> these Klingons they learned Klingon uh, like to a perfect degree where they were like I mean they were like growling it out every time they spoke um, uh, Todd Bryant as Captain Claw and Spice Williams as Vixus um, they developed a whole backstory between themselves. Like they went whole hog on this. And I loved every bit of moments that they had on screen. They were just fantastic. And uh, probably some of my favorite Klingons in the Star Trek universe. I uh, am surprised Are you? to hear you say that. <laughs> I am surprised to hear. And, and it's, not for, it's not because necessarily they were not great as the Klingons. They're fun as the Klingons. I think they're woefully underused. Well, sure. They're an artificial nemesis that we didn't need. Uh, and and I think it's uh, that that is a central sort of, of failing is having ultimately, you know, good actors playing good Klingons 
uh, and and not really exploring it. Uh, no, absolutely. Because well, we mean, already we, had the nemesis. You had three nemesis. Nemeses. We had nemesis. Nemesises. We had so many of the nemesis. <laughs> it, it, yeah, they developed a lot of, of, of issues for Kirk and his crew to battle against. And certainly the Klingon element was probably not necessary. But, uh, you know, if I get to watch these two, I, I guess I was okay with it. But yes, from a storytelling perspective... It was uh they were they were poorly integrated into the structure of the story. The, the movie was um, actually penned by David Lowry, but mostly the idea came from Shatner and Bennett, and the three of them are are story credit, uh, and and Lowry writing it. And Lowry has this was his first movie after uh, Dreamscape. Dreamscape. Oh yeah. What? I love that movie. I'm never going to watch it again because of that. Because <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I love terrible. it so much. <laughs> uh, this was the, the. Now I'm not entirely sure when this was being written. Uh, do you know the exact dates of the writer's strike? Was it the whole year uh, that this was being written? Uh, I don't know. I think it was '88 though, and because uh, they were shooting this in '88. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that sure that is where some of the criticism uh, or or some of the critique comes that maybe had this not been in the middle of the writer strike had they not been sort of desperate to get it done to you know as a result of what was going on with the strike that we would have had a better uh, ultimately a better film that some of the silliness of the humor would not have snuck through. That's always possible when it comes to writer strikes and uh, you know these these studios who are you know adamant about pushing these things through anyway. Um, you know, it's one of those things. It's like I, I don't know. It, it, they obviously have things that they have to meet. They have money they have to spend. Just whatever whatever the reasoning is, they decide to move forward with projects anyway. Probably to uh, you know tell the writers, see, we don't need you. Um, that's I'm sure a part of it. Um, unfortunately, in the end, it generally results in projects that that struggle quite a bit. I mean, this was uh, something that happened during Quantum of Solace in the Bond universe um, and plenty of other um, uh, projects that are out there that have been affected one way or another because of these writer strikes. Yes, this likely would have been better if they had either held off on it or if they had uh, just waited until the strike was over. Who knows, though? You know, we don't have that product, so we don't have the benefit of uh, of that. Obviously, we do have a lot of folks who are complaining about it. The uh, you know, Shatner says that we weren't served by our special effects, uh, and yet this is a movie that demanded uh, special effects and attention from special effects. I found this fascinating uh, when you look at Ralph Winter and you you hear Ralph Winter talk about the way he what he learned from this film in terms of of keeping an eye on uh, effects in particular the effects work that's going on that this was happening uh under the the guise of a a guy the, the only name i heard brought up was was bran farren and ralph winter says you know bran farren had a lot of enthusiasm but he was in long island and uh then harv bennett says i think he just lost energy in the project and and i have never heard an individual called out by name as a guy who is you know at least in some part responsible for a film's effects central effects sequence not working apparently he he did a test of the god light 
that kind of the giant white light that we see at the end. And that's what kind of sold them on using this guy. I guess they didn't go to industrial light and magic um, as they had on the previous films because they uh, did not have availability in their schedule. They were working on um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and they couldn't jump onto this. And uh, so they had to shop around and find somebody else to handle the effects. And uh, so this was the guy they ended up with. And it sounds like he sold them a bill of goods that said he could do the work. Uh, yeah, and I mean, I watched the same stuff you did. It sounds like he, you know, they uh, kind of kept pushing to get stuff and and he just couldn't deliver. It sounds, it's it's a tough way to go. And uh, it's effects is one of those tricky things where you kind of have to rely on them to be doing stuff and getting you stuff and, and just hoping that things are happening. Um, there was, uh, you know, I, uh, Shatner says there's this one moment where um, he asked somebody is this, about some of the effects, and he's, he's just like, "When am I going to see these this particular set of effects?" And they're like, "Oh, you saw that two weeks ago." He's like, "I did," and he's like, "I don't know if <laughs> if they were lying or misinformed, or I was confused and forgetful." He's like, "To this day, I still don't have any idea if I ever saw those effects or not." And he said, "I think that Shatner." really had uh, learned a lot about the struggle of being a director and just how every single decision on the set really falls to you. And um, it, it sounded, uh, it, I mean, he had done it before. He had directed episodes of uh, that cop show of his. And uh, I don't think but, we've, we've actually said it yet. I don't think we've actually, is that a thing? We're going to hang our hats on that? I we think shouldn't. we shouldn't. <laughs> okay. All right, good. If he won't say it, Pete, then we, we won't, won't say, say it. it. <laughs> He had never directed this scope before and trying to handle all of these different things. It sounded pretty uh, kind of overwhelming. And when it came to these things, like these effects and things, it's just like all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess that's fine. And, uh, you know, you kind of have to you know, just go along with some of this stuff and hope that it's going to work. And I guess in the case of Bran Farron and his company, a lot of things didn't. And so a lot of the effects in here really do have kind of an unfinished feel, which is, uh, it's unfortunate. He was on special visual effects for Altered States. I'm a big fan of that movie. Uh, he went on to Death Trap, uh, Places in the Heart, Little Shop of Horrors, uh, Making Mr. Right before he uh, landed on Star Trek V. After this, uh, boy, he hasn't done much. Uh, Second Sight, and that's that was his last visual effects credit. I just, I mean, seriously, have you ever heard in this kind of uh, context, in this, the, you know, special features, an individual called out by name like this? I've never heard that. No, it's it's just one of those things where, uh, yeah, I mean, they've got a, I mean, there clearly were issues. <laughs> yeah. That's what it is. Um, and uh, And they have to shift the blame to somebody. And it sounds like Bran did not deliver. And so they had to live with some effects that oddly do look like altered states. When you're watching the trip through the, the Great Barrier, it kind of yeah, looks... Yeah, it looks like altered states. <laughs> but yeah. you know what's interesting about that, Andy? Like, the watching the end of the film not knowing this, it absolutely fits within the scope and scale of Star Trek effects. Like, there was nothing in the God thing at the end where I thought, wow, that is a that is a terrible effect, even for Star Trek, right? I well, no, I, I think it was okay. I think some of it was probably underwhelming, and and that's the thing. I mean, with in the world of effects, you're always trying to impress, and if your effects just feel very standard or kind of flat, it's like you know, part of that, it, you know, it, then to a certain extent, you did fail, right? It's like 
you're not you're not standing out in any way. But hearing, I mean, okay, so compare that to to uh, Shatner's description of what he wanted to have happen. Yeah, so Shatner was wanting after the defeat or the kind of the initial defeat of the God being. Um, as uh, I, I guess it was as Shatner and or Kirk, Spock, and McCoy were escaping, all of these demons were going to come up out of the ground and start uh, pursuing them. Um, they couldn't quite figure out how to do that, so they changed them to these rock men. <laughs> and and then there was and then it was like, okay, we're going to have ten rock men. And then all of a sudden they said, well, you don't have the budget to do ten rock men. We can do five rock men. And then it was three, and then it was one. You could do, you could have one rock man, and uh, so he's like, "Fine, okay," because it was like a three hundred fifty thousand dollars costume to kind of create this thing. for one of the rock men. For one rock man, yeah. And so they create this rock man costume, and they do these tests, and it's terrible. It is just the most embarrassing costume ever. It just, it's just dumb. And uh, and Shatner's like, I can't use that. And so he had to kind of re- revamp the whole ending of the script. And that's why he's kind of like, you know, on the run and the God thing pops back up again and the Vulcans come up and shoot it. And it's you know kind of just a sparky explosion. And then he's beamed out. There's not much to it. It's pretty flat. And that is kind of the, the curse of a project that uh, is having, uh, aside from story issues, because of this, the writer strike, it's having budget issues because of, of things like this happening. And you're just kind of working on the fly. And, you know, I think Shatner was really put in a really tough spot that he had to deal with situations like this that you know, I, I, I can't blame that completely on him either. Because if he was sold a bill of goods saying, you can have 10 Rockmen, he's like, great, let's have 10 Rockmen. And then... And and the whole you know end of the script is built around that, and then they come to him and say, "Oh, I'm sorry, you only get one rock man." It's like, and it can't breathe fire. It can't have yeah. any fire near it when its central purpose is to look like the ninth circle of hell, a lava rock man. That's how it was originally pitched. Was that these emerge from fire and brimstone, and now it's well, we can't do the fire; it'll melt the, the actor's face. That's and, and that that to me that does not fall on Shatner. No, I I wholeheartedly blame Ralph Winter for that. <laughs> and that's just also mostly because he was kind of a smart aleck about it. He he is, and and as the person who's really kind of it sounded like he was kind of the line producer, the one who's responsible for the budget and everything. Yep, the line yeah. items fall on him. So that falls on him. I blame I blame old Ralph. Uh, we're going to talk about the very opening scene in the deep scene dive, but the. Uh, the the scene after that, the that where we roll over credits, where they they apparently have a lot of footage of Yosemite, and they <laughs> used a lot of it. Uh, and so here we have we the the opening credits. It's not over space. It's not over clouds like it was in the Voyage Home. Uh, it is through Yosemite. So it's the first time I think we're on the ground for a credits roll. And I I think it's actually quite elegant. I think it's lovely. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a nice tour. It's a very grounding sort of element. And then we, we get to, uh, uh, you know, the captain climbing El Capitan. Uh, what do you think of this opening sequence? Uh, here are th- here's what I think about it. There are a lot of elements I like in this opening sequence. I like that they're at Yosemite. I like that it's still a park that people go and climb in. I think it says something about a story starting with, you know, this captain whose you know job is to go uh, where no one has gone before. And here he is doing a free climb up El Capitan. I think that's really interesting. 
I like the fact that these three characters who we've grown to love, and we know that they love each other, there's a great friendship between these three people, they're out camping. I love all of that. Unfortunately, the script is tainted with some just terrible, terrible humor that pains me every time they say it things, you know? It's, it's, it's a very frustrating scene because I like so much the concept of it that, and it's burdened by the humor within it. I agree with you 100%. Uh, you know, even before they they get around the campfire, some of the humor around, uh, you know, that they start diving into when, when he's on the side of the mountain and Spock has his, his uh, jet boots. The part where it, I start to, to deeply question the direction of the film is the anti-gravity ankle catch. <laughs> which which is which hurts me it hurts me every time i see it and um you know as as kirk is upside down and so is spock even though we've already seen that the jet boots are have the jets coming out of the bottom and that makes me crazy i it's just maybe it's a silly thing but it makes me crazy i i actually though i think what this sequence sets up is that uh shatner actually has a really good eye the shots that he chooses really are quite good there is very strong the the uh, uh you know i think he's he's got a good sense of what makes something visually interesting that's something i saw in this film is that shatner was doing stuff with his camera that uh, nimoy never did in right. his last two films and I was thrilled to see Shatner playing around. You know, he does he does zooms. He does some more interesting camera moves. He even does some like split diopters throughout. I just found him to be a much more um, interesting director to watch, despite any issues that there might be within the story. I just he he had a better visual sense. I agree with that. You know, when he gets, they get back to the ship, and there's the whole, oh my gosh, they're lost, and and Chekhov is blowing into the into the uh, um, mm. communicator. Oh. oh, it's suddenly it's cleared up, and and I I find that that whole that whole sequence is pretty painful to watch, but it's nice to meet our characters again, right? This gets us back into the into the rest of the crew. I really like what is going on on the ship. Uh, I, I love the fact that the ship is falling apart, and mostly because I love the way she, uh, Kirk interacts with it. Right, his his little throwaway lines are some of my favorite lines in in the films. Anything work around here, or you know, just those I little things. I miss my chair. I miss my <laughs> chair. Right, those are great. Those are great little bits of just texture. Uh, and and again, I I so like the set of of this particular bridge and this particular enterprise that that I'm I'm gratified to be there. I don't. Don't like things uh, such as you know close up top a high angle on the captain's log, and it it's a piece of computer equipment that literally is held together by springs and falls mm. starts popping apart. I find that little bit of visual gaggery um, very upsetting. Yes, <laughs> that's one word for it. It's very upsetting. But then then we go to Paradise City, and uh-huh. Paradise City is uh, boy. Never was there more a greater hive of <laughs> scum humor, and villainy. humorless <laughs> scum and villainy uh, than at Paradise City, uh, which is essentially Paramount backlot uh, extras and um, uh, remains uh, set pieces all piled up. Um, I, I have a I have a lot of problems with Paradise City. There are a lot of problems. The cat woman creature. The, the, uh, yes, cat woman top creature. Is the first thing that really just sets me off. 
I actually, let's talk about the three uh, representatives, the Klingon, the Romulan, and the human representatives. Uh, this, and this Paradise City, we should say, uh, is on Nimbus 3, which is in the neutral zone. Yes. And so we have these three representatives from each of these races, and they come together supposedly to, you know, to search for galactic peace to, as a represent, representation of galactic peace. And uh, they are really terrible representatives of their race. Well, and I was a little confused why they were there in the first place. Are they like there to because they weren't really there to to have a big powwow or anything, right? It's well, just like, I thought that was the idea was that originally they were this this body was set up uh, to have that sort of powwow, but it has devolved into just a paralyzed, um, you know, uh, political um, waste of time, and so they just show up to drink and trade, uh, you know, and they're they're essentially you know criminal element now but it's Polit- not like a meeting criminals. because because uh david warner and uh you know as as talbot and and the klingon cord they're just they've been there forever it seems so i was like well what? I, they've been there forever poorly let's just say poorly written element of the script it, it was a poorly written element of the script but it's also they're also terrible representatives of their races in the star trek universe like the romulan <laughs> yes, that she's the worst romulan ever Right. There, there is no, that's not, that's not a Romulan. Yeah. And maybe I, they were still sort of stretching their legs with who Romulans are, but we've, I think we knew at that point that's, she's no Romulan. Yeah. <laughs> there was no giggling. Uh, so I, that was, uh, that was trouble. You know, we do have a bit of the speechifying about the history of planetary agreements. And, and that's the, you know, kind of justifying why they're there. And that's a, on, on the part of David Warner. And that's a part that I get very frustrated with just because I'm, I get tired of, of them so quickly. The general is, you know, he's, he's fine. Uh, he's sort of inconsequential until the end. The rest of Paradise City uh, is, it's just a lot of that same kind of humor. Yeah, the, the just, it's, it's a dumb bar. It's just got dumb people in it. It's just a very frustrating place that uh, it just felt very cheap. Everything about it felt cheap, cheap, cheap. So we already called out the pool the pool table that's actually a pool. Didn't land well. You talked about the cat woman with three breasts who apparently is a lightweight because Kurt deadlifts, or Kirk deadlifts her and throws her across the room over his head. Well, and apparently as soon as a cat touches water, I mean, that it dies. kills her. Yeah. Because uh, I, I was a little perplexed as to why she just, that was it. It was yeah. over. <laughs> no, she drowned face up in a pool that's too. The HSD. pool table. Yeah, the pool table. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have the fan dance, Pete. Uhura's fan dance. And according to to Lowry, he said that that he th- threw that out as a joke because he and Harv and and Shatner were sitting around trying to figure out how to um, distract these guys. And he threw it out as a joke. And they were both like, yes, that's a great idea. But according to um, uh, somebody else, who, who's the other person who said it was someone else's idea? It's like, I don't think anybody would wanted to take credit <laughs> for that idea. Uh, this week on the Saturday matinee, Andy's list is top 18 way, uh, better ways to distract Paradise City than Uhura's <laughs> fan dance. All right. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, it's oh, uh, terrible. What about Uhura and Scotty, though? We, we haven't really settled on that. Okay, so I mean, they're established as buddies at the beginning when you know they're sharing dinner or whatever. But you know, that's just like buddies. And then all of a sudden, Uhura, after she's kind of taken under uh, Cybox's spell, 
Um, apparently it releases the inner love that she's been hiding for Scotty and it turns into something crazy, which, you know, is one thing and certainly is an item for humor uh, or one type type of humor, I guess you could call it. It doesn't work for me. But the thing that really drives me crazy about it is that it's not even resolved. When we get to the end of the film, it's like it's never brought up again. If you're going to introduce something like that, you have to close that loop. But what this does give us, Andy, if you look up uh, the collected works of Sad Sad Spock Panda, uh, there is a delightful page called The Five Times Scotty and Uhura Acted Like a Couple, and the one time they finally became one, a five-in-one fluffy fic of Scotty and Uhura becoming a couple actually written for the new Star Trek kink meme. That's right. The actual fan fiction completes the story of Uhura and Scotty hooking up. I knew fan fiction would circle back into this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not to, uh, you know, we have blue unicorns, which it's funny because they mentioned to Roddenberry that, hey, what about having some unicorns? And he adamantly was opposed to having unicorns in the script or in this film because he said, that's fantasy. We're not doing fantasy here. And people know unicorns are fantasy. Yet uh, they still somehow got it by him. Okay, we'll paint them blue, but they still have a horn on their head. But it's not a unicorn. But it's, it's a like, wee horn. Yeah, <laughs> it's like what? Oh, okay, that's okay then. It's not a horn. It's a callus. <laughs> it's just it's like callus. Oh dear. Yes. So we have those, and of course, apparently Spock can uh, do the Vulcan neck pinch on them too. I uh, to well, know. see now. I I had no problem with that. I actually don't either. No problem. It's just just funny. Uh, And then there's the row your boat bit, Pete. Yeah, no, I don't like that either. No. But there is a purpose to it, right? I mean, if you look at it from us being able to celebrate what these three guys represent to one another, which you and I have been talking about over the course of the last, you know, four movies before this, this is really a story about these three guys and the id ego, super ego that is, you know, Kirk, McCoy, Spock, and uh, this is how we're going to um, uh, express it in this film. We're going to express that relationship this way. To what end? It's one of the strengths of the film is really kind of watching the relationship between these three uh, kind of have some some friction as as Cybok kind of tests them a little bit and, and works at pulling them to apart a little bit. I think that's really interesting. I don't think the row your boat um, bit at the beginning and end help it in any way. Um, although it is nice to see them just kind of, you know, hanging out and being uh, comrades and friends. I like all of that. So to that end, I guess that's what they're going for. I just don't think that was the strongest way to do it. But what's more interesting, though, is to me a better example exploring that relationship is when they're all in the brig. Actually, I think you're right because it really, I'd, I'd go before the brig. I think their relationship, I found it really start um, having some interesting uh, moments of exploration after they um, they crashed the shuttle into the uh, the hangar bay. In it was just a beautiful scene, it's just it's it's beautifully lit. Yes. Just uh, just a gorgeous set. Everything about it is just incredible. And then you have this fantastic moment where where Kirk uh, gets a couple chances at at getting uh, getting Cybok, um, and and he doesn't as he and Cybok struggle. The gun falls and it lands over by Spock, who picks it up and points it at Cybok. And Kirk's just like shoot him, 
and and Spock can't. And it's really interesting. And it creates such interesting tension between Kirk and Spock. I was like just really drawn in by the power in everything that was going on between the two of them from that point all the way through the whole scene in the brig um, as they're struggling with this relationship and the reveal that Cybok is his brother and everything like it's just like such great stuff and you've got you know Kirk incredibly frustrated with Spock uh, McCoy frustrated with Kirk because he you know he doesn't see that Spock couldn't kill his brother there's just so much tension between the three of them uh, it's just for me that was one of the strongest bits in the whole film I absolutely agree uh, with the exception of the the Morse code stand oh. back that was a little bit too camp for me after such a rewarding sequence uh, I, I actually had problems with that but right uh, you know almost after that when they're they're um, uh, I, so it, their sequence when they're actually when Cybok actually confronts them, and um, in in that room and is taking away attempting to take away their pain, uh, the we get to see a side of McCoy that I think is unique so far in the films that we actually get to experience a little bit of his history and see how he. Um, you know, how he deals with that sort of deep emotional um, component through the death of his father, where he actually, you know, carries around the guilt of having killed his father when it was actually, a, you know, at the, at the time it was, you know... A, a mercy killing. A mercy killing when they found a cure <laughs> like 48 hours later, um, which it would be hard to, be hard to take. It would yeah. be hard to take. Uh, and I really uh, liked that piece of it. Um uh, but ultimately, and how they shot it. Yeah, that you know that was that was the point I wanted to make earlier. You talk, we were talking about the beautiful lighting in the in the um, uh, hangar bay. I think the lighting in general, every place that where we weren't on the bridge it, because we spent so much time on the bridge, they took some real liberties with creative and beautiful lighting uh, in really new parts of the ship, places we hadn't seen before um, that I, I thought were fantastically engaging throughout. Not to mention that the scene you were just talking about with McCoy and and the mind meld where he re-experiences the death of his father the way that they shot that was like theatrical work where they actually had a a scrim that was lit on on one side it looks like a wall and when then they changed the lights and they turned the lights off on the wall and they turn up the lights on the stuff behind it all of a sudden you can see through the wall and you see this whole set where his father is like that is just ingenious the way to play around like that and come up with a a cheap way to make this effect that worked really well. Absolutely, it just it was it was smart. Um, so I, you know, there's a lot of stuff on this ship that I think is uh, is really good. And if you all if you buy into the fact that there is this crazy cultist who has, uh, you know, taken control of the ship and has been able to, um, you know, through his, you know, mind meldy power um, to sway the the crew to his. Uh, side, I think there's there's actually a lot to appreciate uh, about this movie, you know, and the sequences on the Enterprise. And what I found so interesting is is watching the story of Cybok and this this power he has with people, and the power that, or and just the belief, this incredibly strong belief he has that that what he's doing is right, and he's he's you know on this quest to find God. I just found that so 
I don't know, I it really hit me this time. I really enjoyed the quest. And I was just like, you know, how many films have we seen where it's from his perspective? He's the one that nobody believes and he has to take them captive and prove that he's right. I and mean, we've seen that a number of times in other films. And it's like, it's interesting to see it now from from the other side of these people who are taken captive by this crazy guy who thinks he's right and ostensibly is. I mean, he, he clearly had a vision and it got him through the Great Barrier to this Shakari uh, god planet. It just happens that the creature that's there is not God and is just some malignant spirit that's actually out to kind of take the ship and escape. Um, I found it really fascinating and I liked that here you have this antagonist that is out he's not actually out to do harm he's just he's kind of just taking these people and forcing them to to go on this journey with him because he thinks it's for the better of everybody and in the end he's kind of like broken and destroyed because of that now could there have been more of him being broken and destroyed at the end of that absolutely i i was a little disappointed with his end and his turn very quickly to all of a sudden help them escape it, it just felt um like a cheap way to make it work for their escape um, it feel like a, about a three hundred fifty thousand dollar decision it pretty much so, yeah. is that kind of what it felt like <laughs> one of those sorts of things <laughs> um but but still it you know i i liked what they were going for with it uh, Deep Scene Dive is an easy one to find. Uh, pretty much just press play. The very first scene. It is the very first scene. Uh, this is the, it's the first scene of the film. It is uh, the scene where we meet uh, the first of the suede uh, um, uh, followers. We get a great tour of uh, Nimbus 3 in the neutral zone, the planet of galactic peace. Uh, we cut back and forth between this series of close-ups of our first follower and this shadowy figure on a horse. I found this to be an incredibly compelling open for this film. It's it's very mysterious. We don't really have a sense of what's going on here. Uh, we don't know who these characters are. It's not like it's starting with with Kirk and Spock. Um, uh, it's it's just a, it's a mystery. It's a pre credit sequence, which we really haven't had yet no. in Star Trek. Right, and and that's very exciting. Um, I, uh, I I just I really liked this open because it sets up an incredible mystery for us, and it sets up a really unique character. We've get the we get this character who is this messiah who uh, is kind of we riding up toward this guy in this very Terry Gilliam esque um, slow mo ride with like whispering sounds coming behind him and stuff. It very much felt like the Fisher King to me. Totally. Um, and and then this 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 figure uh, on this planet in the neutral zone, which is planet of galactic peace. They, as we learn later, they you, they're not allowed weapons, and so what they have done is they've kind of concocted their own weapons. So here he is trying to load his gun that shoots rocks, at people, <laughs> which I I thought was really uh, interesting. And, uh, you know, this guy is like digging holes in the ground. And you're like, what on earth is this person doing? I, I don't know. I was so intrigued by the open of this film. I was intrigued from the moment that the cyborg hopped off the horse and, and kind of healed him. And just kind of this moment of this connection between the two is this person is just like, what have you just done to me with your intense stare at my soul? I, I found that really interesting. And then, and then you get this kind of awkward reveal of the of the Vulcan ears as he pulls his his hood back and um, and then he kind of starts laughing and and it's not 
I don't know. I, I, I was a little, I'm not as connected to the Star Trek um, universe as some, um, but I know Vulcans are generally kind of humorless people. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, that's kind of odd. I, 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 I guess it threw me out a little bit. And I don't think that's what they were intending to do. But I think for Star Trek fans, it probably irked them a little bit. Well, yeah. I mean, it depends on what you, you know, what you want out of the movie, right? I mean, I, I feel like I, when I first saw it, I was really frustrated because they've spent a lot of time telling us, here's who Vulcans are. And whenever we see Vulcans that are outside of this context, it's it's through some other, you know, universe, right? They're in, we, we have Dark Spa, or, right? you know, when they go into other timelines we we explored that a little bit in the show um we've uh but but generally um the vulcans as those who have uh given up emotion uh in favor of logic and peace uh that's what we expect and so to have this guy start laughing i feel like that is the first fork in the road if you can get past that with a spirit of curiosity about what could they possibly do be doing here what story could they possibly be trying to tell by hanging me out on this ledge and testing my faith in who vulcans are if you can move past that then you might stand a chance of of enjoying kind of what this story represents but there were a lot of folks who have who still can't i mentioned it to a friend of mine who um uh, you know, that we were doing the show and he turned around and said, ugh, Vulcan laughter. You know, that's still <laughs> a sore point. Uh, I think that's that's very real. I, I did not have that problem this time. Uh, I found myself more curious about it. Also, because I think Lawrence Luckenbill is great in in this. He is very, he's so big and yeah. charismatic and, uh, and, and I think he's just a... Uh, he is a really interesting figure on screen, and he is worth giving uh, uh, that level of attention, even through a, a terrible script. Uh, he's worth uh, giving some attention. Well, and here's a problem, or here it's a central issue with the script is that they they have these things, and I didn't know that there was this this history with Vulcans where they used to be much more emotional, and yes. then they they chose to take this shift. I don't know where that line was created where when did that happen in the in the you know the chronology of this of this storytelling yeah we we already knew that okay so so it was out there i think a lot of people probably forgot that that was out there i could have used a reminder that that was out there and i hardly <laughs> know anything about vulcans that's, that's what i'm what getting, getting to, to yeah is okay. is they could have used a better setup for the fact that hey vulcans used to be you know big gigglers <laughs> yeah it was like all the oh those gigglers over there, but but not anymore. And and I think that's something that they could have used to set this up better, um, because there's no setup for it. And all of a sudden you have this Vulcan who just starts laughing and and it's like uh, what I I don't understand. And I think that's the issue I have. As the story went on, I was like oh okay, so there's this history with Vulcans and because they they start talking about that and how he took this other path and and went this other route. I'm like, okay, I get it now. But it, it took me until later in the film to get it. And I'm okay with that in a lot of contexts. But when it's something like this that they've set up so well beforehand, all of a sudden it kind of throws me a little bit. I'm not saying I had a big issue with it like some Star Trek fans did. I'm just saying it kind of threw me for, for a minute. Like, I don't understand this now. 
I guess it's not like there was a single episode that said, hey, this is ancient. In ancient times, Vulcans (laughs) were happy people. Uh, but but I do see your point, and I but I also think that we we have a, a bit of a setup around Vulcans and the purging of emotions through like you know Kolinar, and we we they we establish that in uh, um, I think the motion picture, and then in uh, in the search for Spock, and uh, so they've they sort of have been teasing at this at at the way not when. Vulcans got rid of emotion, but the fact that there is, there does exist an emotional undercurrent inside in a Vulcan, right? That is, I think, what they were leveraging in this movie. That in fact we know enough about the fact, even from the the cinematic universe of Star Trek, uh, that w- there is enough of uh, understanding that there is emotion inside of Vulcans uh, that um, that we can move forward. And that this will be counter to our understanding. I think that the, the masses who understand Vulcans who don't know all of the history and haven't read all of this sort of stuff and and didn't pay that close attention in the other movies. <laughs> I, I'm not saying I'm not naming names, but I'm just saying in the masses, you know, <laughs> yes. they, who might have missed all of this. It's a little confusing because, you know, they might not have gotten that. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. But what's really funny is that I, I, what what my understanding of Vulcans and emotion is that the emotion generally is violence, right? That that you know, and oh, we have a number of of uh, instances in the original series where Spock and usually Spock and McCoy, um, you know, my my people gave up uh, emotion, uh, you know, because it always led to war, something violent. Like we've we shunned violence, and it and what was left was logic. And and so um, it, it what we what we have in Cybok is a Vulcan who laughs, and that's never something that we've been introduced to. So yeah. all this talk about emotion is is you know it's fine, even if we have angry, violent Vulcans. Um, we've never had giggling Vulcans or giggling <laughs> Romulans. So this is the movie with all of the giggling. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> And they want to talk about more I'll about throw it. in humor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. So anyway, uh, belabored that point. I think probably too long. Um, so where does that take us in our in, in, the laughing Vulcan? So the, so the laughing Vulcan is a real point in in this, and that is the opening sequence, right? That is you. Yeah. That's it. If you can't make it past this, the whole movie is sunk. Well, and that's that's why this is such an interesting scene because it really sets up a lot of the pros and cons within this film. You know, a really fascinating mystery that also might be burdened by something that is going to be really hard for people to get past, and it could really set up, you know, kind of create this divisive element for uh, for people to move forward. So compare Cybok and John, the character. Uh his first follower, uh, Rex Holman, Rex Holman, compare their experience looking face to face, head to head with Daisy Ridley and Adam Driver when they're doing their, I'm going to look intently at you uh, and and we're going to use the force on each other's heads. Which one do you buy more? (laughs) Well, there are a lot of elements at work, (laughs) but it's really the same scene. It's, it's kind of, yeah, I, 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 I would probably go with uh, with Daisy and and Driver. 
I but I do think um, Luck and Bill has this really great look as he's kind of looking at somebody. Like I really just got a sense that he, I bought this entire thing going on between Cybok and John as he was like, or is it John or John? On John. I, I really bought it. I, I really connected with it. I, I it really kind of was, I thought a really powerful moment just seeing how just this moment that Cybok has was the, with this man, all of a sudden this man is like breaking down and is just like, what do you need me to do? I thought that was really interesting. I, I liked it quite a bit. Yeah. And that this guy instantly kind of turned and gave up his life digging holes in the dirt <laughs> to join him. A, you know what? Ironically, he's a moisture farmer. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Never saw that coming. Universes really do cross. Uh, Rex Holman, you already mentioned, he also played Morgan Earp in the original series episode. It was one of the later episodes, Spectre of the Gun where the crew uh, was condemned to the losing side of a recreation of the gunfight at the OK Corral. Morgan Earp. Was that when they were uh, worried that all of the Western TV shows were, were beating them? <laughs> yes, <ratings-wise>? right. <laughs> so now we're a Western TV show. Yes. Uh, and uh, Lawrence Luckenbill uh, as Cybok, he, he, they, they wanted Sean Connery. I thought that was interesting. He was doing uh, Indy 3, as I already said. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure that would have been a... Uh, would have been a better casting. And uh, and Luck and Bill, um, uh, Shatner saw him doing a one man sh- a one man performance, one man show of uh, kind of is I guess the the life and story of LBJ. LBJ, yeah, which I thought was pretty interesting. And uh, you know, thought he could do it. And I think Luck and Bill is a really compelling actor to watch. And I don't know if I've seen him in much, um, but I really enjoyed him as Cybok. What else was he in? Uh, now that you've asked, Messenger. Cocktail. He was in Death. Cocktail. He was in Cocktail. That's true. Uh, Boys in the Band. He's got, you know, he's got 50 credits. Yeah. A lot of TV stuff. Not much that I've seen. Yeah. You have a central question here. Another lore question, right? Are Vulcans stronger than humans? I didn't realize it was a lore question, but uh, it, it it seems that he is really strong yes. when he and Kirk are fighting. Like he he commands that that battle yeah. um, as as much as Kirk. In fact, I would argue that he holds his own against Kirk better than Khan did in the TV episode where Khan and Kirk were fighting because. Kirk really took Khan down pretty well yes. in that fight, I'd yeah. say. Yeah, I think Cybok is to Kirk as Kirk is to three-breasted cat girl. Uh, I, yeah, I think you're probably right. Okay. Um, I'm yeah, glad we have that comparison. Vulcan, <laughs> Vulcans are stronger than humans. Okay. Um, so, camera. Andrew Laszlo well, again. Yeah, his work in this opening scene... Um, Again, we've got some nice moves as the camera is kind of moving in on people and everything. Just fantastic uh, moments. They had some wind machines out on this this desert where they were filming and um, just created a, just a beautifully haunting landscape as they were kind of blowing the sand everywhere, just uh, as it was whipping around, um, particularly Cybok as he's kind of riding up in slow motion on his blue unicorn. It really... <laughs> Uh, it was really powerful. It just, it was like gorgeous, gorgeous imagery all through. I think so too. Great use of location, great use of that, you know, that great old tree. Uh, I love the color tone of the opening sequence. I love the sort of jaundiced feel that we get of him. It really adds to the desperation of of the sequence. I love that it's super burnt out, right? I mean, it, we just, it, it just, the highlights are are so bright uh, that it it's just really lovely. 
You know, it's funny that you mentioned the tree is um, they had a lot less time to shoot this whole scene than anticipated originally because that tree was delivered to the wrong location. You know who I hold at fault for that? <laughs> yes, Executive I producer do. Ralph Winter. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's too bad because that tree is a charismatic bit. It needed to be there. It's a, it really is a beautiful bit for this. The uh, the, the location for this is Owens Lake, California, and I that if you if you Google Map Owens Lake and do the satellite view, uh, boy, it still looks just like this. <laughs> Hasn't changed much. <laughs> Hasn't changed a bit. Um, and so uh, yeah, you can we we should take a road trip to the Let's middle of Owens Lake. We'll do uh, our next show there. Production design Herman <laughs> F. Zimmerman. I think this was this his first. This is. Uh, this is okay. this is his kickoff, and he becomes quite the name in this franchise. Actually, uh, this is his first film credit. He had actually done um, the first season of Next Generation, I think, right before this. Right. Um, but I mean, really, from the, from that point and this point moving forward, he essentially is the look and feel of Star Trek, right? Yeah, between him and and Michael Akuda, of who does all of the all of the graphics, who developed the visual language uh, of uh, of the film, those two guys really did have ultimately owned the look of Star Trek. And so when I say like this is this is what I what I love, this is the era I love. It's because of these guys. Yeah, yeah. I mean Zimmerman. Uh, I mean, after this, I mean, he works on the films, I think, all the way through, uh, is it Nemesis? Or did he end up working on, um, uh, no, he didn't go, He no, he didn't last past that. Um, but he did, um, uh, what's that other TV show? Deep Space Nine and uh, Enterprise. Enterprise, Enterprise. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yeah. All 98 episodes of Enterprise, too. And, and that was a really interesting one. See, now we're going to, we should do a whole show on every episode of the, you know. <laughs> Forget it. <laughs> uh, but yes, the the he did do he 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 did do Nemesis in Nemesis Insurrection Generations First Contact. Yeah, he did the whole the uh, whole next gen next gen film stuff. franchise. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, quite a legacy, and of course we have uh, Jerry Goldsmith. Boy, I tell you, uh, he's going to be back in our conversations as we uh, jump back into uh, some of these later Star Trek films. But his music here is just so strong. I mean, you know, he did the original uh, motion picture, and here he is back in the fold, finally doing some really great music. Just the stuff that he develops all through this, and the stuff that he has for uh, for the God Planet, and just just beautiful, beautiful pieces. And and the 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 bit that he opens the film with is just very haunting. It fits the tone and feel exactly. It's just what we needed to kick this film off with. Well, and I would I would add to that. Listen to the cue change when we move from this sequence into the Yosemite stuff uh, for one of the mm. most beautiful context shifts, like a dramatic context shift. But the music just leads you right into it. It's perfect. Well, and he's got, um, when when we go into the title sequence and we actually have um, kind of the build, that fantastic uh, theme that he developed back in the motion picture right. as it builds and we get the um, uh, the final title pops up and everything. He does that incredible, I don't know what it is, that instrument, it's like a, a blaster sort of whoop that, that uh, he incorporates so well mm-hmm. Into his music and his his uh, Klingon stuff is just so stinking good. That's probably why I'm so in love with the Klingons in this film <laughs> because, because Goldsmith's Goldsmith. music for them is just so good. 
So, Andy, I did not know. Uh, I, I've, I have long fantasized about having a marshmallow dispenser, and then you found it. That's right, man. I didn't even know that this was a thing. And now it's all I can think about. I can't imagine how many people uh, bought into it as far as kind of a, a, a tie-in, a product tie-in with Star Trek V. But Kraft thought it was a good idea. They did to, to develop something that looks like the thing that Spock had. Uh, and while Spock's actually manufactured, it was a little food replicator, it actually made marshmallows. Uh, the Kraft marshmallow dispenser actually let you carry three marshmallows. Because who doesn't need to be carrying marshmallows? I need to be carrying, yes. And and I love the point that the, uh, uh, this is Junk Ball, I think Junk Ball Media, is that right? uh, made in the video uh, that, in fact, you know what is a better container than the Kraft Marshmallow Dispenser, the bag that the Kraft <laughs> Marshmallows came in. And I, I would concur, this looks ridiculous, but I want one. Uh, so if anybody has a lead on this thing, count me in. eBay eBay, baby. That's right. Uh, we do have some more reuse from previous films. Oh, yeah. Starfields, ships, the the shot revealing the Enterprise as it comes over the Excelsior. So frustrating. Well, and this is going to be something we'll see uh, in future films because they certainly love to do that. They love to do that. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and and we have a callback to a film I never thought we would see uh, in, in, in a Star Trek. Who'd have thunk it, right? Yeah. The Apparently, the set for the hangar bay... Um, the only way that they were able to actually build the set to the size and scope that they really were wanting to is because the 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 stage that they were going to build it on already had a huge set on it, and they were able to adapt that set for Star Trek, of all things. <laughs> that set was the Zamunda Palace set from Coming to America. <laughs> so watch the hangar scene, and just think about Eddie Murphy and uh, James Earl Jones as they're hanging out watching people dance in uh, the Zamunda Palace. Love it. Uh, and this shuttle cam thing. I, you know, it just, I, I like that they're keeping consistent with the fact that the cameras that we are seeing things from, um, like the shuttle cams, um, are, <laughs> oh. are things that are completely illogical. Like when, when the shuttle uh, lands on the planet and the, the crew on the Enterprise is watching the footage of these people, it's like the camera that comes on the shuttle cam is way off to the side in a position where, you know, there's nothing even, there's no part of the shuttle that even hangs over there. But apparently that's where it is. And they're watching it. I'm like, which, where, where is this camera coming from? The where is this camera coming from angle in Star Trek is something that has never been answered to my satisfaction. It has <laughs> it never, never been be. answered and it never will be. That is true. How'd this do at awards Fan season? Fan fiction, Pete. Someone's done, <laughs> Someone's done it. Yeah. It's some crazy GoPro fan fiction. All right. Uh, how'd this do in award season? Uh, this film had four wins and three other nominations. When I say four wins and three other <laughs> nominations, Pete, it's, you know, with quotes around it, uh, the, the it actually had, uh, of those seven nominations, six of them were for Razzies. That's right. Everybody loves the Razzie nominations. This film was nominated for six of them. It won three. It won Worst Picture of the Year, Worst Actor, uh, William Shatner, and Worst Director, William Shatner. Uh, I, I I think that he probably was a little hurt by this. Um, it lost, and I guess you could say that's a good thing. It lost Worst Supporting Actor for DeForest Kelly, which <laughs> surprised me. But he lost, and it lost. He lost to Christopher Atkins. I don't even know who that is. In Listen to Me, actually, Christopher Atkins was in uh, um, 
uh, what was that? The Blue Lagoon. Oh my goodness, so, that's go. right. Um, and uh, lost worst screenplay um, to Harlem Nights. Eddie Murphy wrote that one. And it also, I didn't, this is an interesting Razzie category. Worst picture of the decade. Wow. <laughs> Why don't the Oscars incorporate that? The best picture of the decade. But no, they have the worst picture of the decade. But it lost to Mommy Dearest, of all things. So Christopher Atkins was all, also in the pirate movie with Christy <laughs> McNichol. Did he win a Razzie every year he's been in a movie? <laughs> He is, uh, Andy, I'm not kidding. He is in three movies that are in post-production for 2017. He's actually in, I think, four, five movies, four movies that are filming or in post-production still scheduled for 2016. I look forward to that. (laughs) Guy's got 85 credits. Busy man. Yes. I I like the stuff that he's working on. Defrost, the virtual series. Uh, and how to do uh, in the box office because that's I, I this is I hear from Shatner that eventually this ended up roughly with the other movies. Is that true? <laughs> I like that he said that. Right? I like that he believes that for yeah. himself. Well, he also uh, said it as hearsay as yeah, right. the director. He hears. Yeah, I hear, I hear eventually it kind of <laughs> evened out. <laughs> well, he was given thirty three million for his directorial entry into this series. Oh, and, and speaking of, I liked how Harvey said we we like to call this one. Uh, it was Bill's turn. <laughs> So dismissive. Terrible. Anyway, he was given $33 million, which is about $64 million in today's dollars. The movie was the sole opener on June 9th, 1989, opening at number one before it was quickly dislodged its second week by Ghostbusters 2, and the following weekend, I think, by Batman. So it was a rough summer for it. Uh, the movie wasn't the box office hit that its predecessors were, making $52.2 million domestically and $17.9 million internationally for a total of $136.2 million in today's dollars. That is less than half what uh, Voyage Home made. The movie did end up uh, with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $674,500. So it still was a financial success, but it is the lowest on our list thus far. Andy, this is the first time that, in, in going through these original Star Trek movies, where I, I thought, you know, here is one that I would actually like to see uh, remade. Yeah. I would. I think that this is an idea that deserves uh, a, another execution. And and I almost said a, a more sophisticated execution and I think there is something to that just in in terms of fixing the fixing the humor, you know, the humor dial. It's busted. It was just busted. Fixing the script. But there is this is a movie that is culturally resonant that offered in in much more to the eye that I think people stopped looking at because they they walked away from the script. And the, obviously the script has problems, but I think they let that get in the way. I think the mass market let that get in the way. Uh, and, and I think the Razzie tally is testament to this uh, of some things that are going on in this movie that are actually really interesting. And I, my last point uh, is uh, how cool is it that we are looking at uh, a movie uh, a series that's not finished yet that is an action movie uh, of all of these guys in their 60s. Yeah, right. Right? I mean, it, we're celebrating along with these action heroes that are getting to be, you know, old men. That This is not the kind of movie that would be made right now um, on, on the strength of, of this cast. They are still entertaining to watch. 
and um, uh, it's still Star Trek. So there's there's a lot of forgiveness that goes on for me. Yeah, I mean, there definitely is forgiveness that goes on too. I'm not as much a Star Trek fan as you are, but I found a lot more to like in this film than dislike this go around, and I was really surprised by that because I I just remembered being so frustrated with it beforehand. Um, and so I was really happy to see that, wow, there is actually a really good movie here that unfortunately is just buried under some of the worst moments in Star Trek so far. Yeah. Um, and it's it's very frustrating. Um, but I still really liked it. Like I walked away going, this actually is a really compelling story. And I would love it to have been given the chance to be done properly. Listening to some of the Star Trek, um, the 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 fans and the people involved in one of the commentaries, they said this is the Star Trek film that of the six original films, they feel is the is the most close to an original episode of the uh, the first uh, series. They said this feels like an actual something that Gene Roddenberry would have told. Well, uh, yes, and, and I think and I largely because was, of the end. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting thing to look at. And so, I don't know, I... I I'm, there are so many elements within this film that will frustrate me um, to my dying day, but I will watch this again. Like I was, I was so compelled watching this. I actually found myself thinking about it a lot. Going, this was a really interesting film, and I would definitely not say at this point, watching five movies so far, it's not the bottom of my list. That may be the most fascinating <laughs> thing you've said. Oh, I did really? not see that coming. Uh, I. Uh, yes, it is also not at the bottom of my list. I'm, I am with you. Um, I, uh, man, I think it's time for us to actually rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and you'll see our list of films. But if you really just want to get serious, swipe over in your uh, podcasty device and uh, you can just click on the word flick chart. It'll take you right over to this movie. Let's see how well it holds up. All right. Star Trek five, the final frontier or hot fuzz. I have to go hot fuzz. Well, yeah. <laughs> Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, or The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Star Trek V. I would, between the two problematic films, I would say Baron Munchausen. Yeah, I mean, I, I, maybe I would, but I'm such a Star Trek fan. Sure. No, I get it. So I'll, I'm, I'm going to have to defend it. That's fine. Let's do it. All right. I, I'm totally like fine with Star Trek V winning, winning this, but I still would pick Baron Munchausen. Okay. Are you uh-huh. ready? One, One two, two, three. three. Scissors. Uh, Sorry. That's all right. Star Trek V or Gone with the Wind? Oh, Star Trek V. Oh, I would, Andy. Yeah. No, I'd say Star Trek V. Okay. I would say Gone with the Wind Oof. has a lot of stuff going for it. I actually think it's it's probably the better film. There's a lot of stuff that I really dislike about that film now, having rewatched it. Yeah. just I get very frustrated with that film now. Um, I get frustrated with Star Trek V. But I still think it's a more compelling film. Yes. There you go. Star Trek V or From Hell, more recent film. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say Star Trek V. I am too. All right. <laughs> Star Trek V or Clute. I'm going to go with Clute. Uh, I will go with Clute as well. Star Trek V or Spies, early Fritz Lang. Uh, Star Trek V. I, um, I, I would say Spies... But I'm okay giving you Star Trek V. All right. Star Trek V or Seconds. Definitely Seconds for me. Oh, I I, I think I'm Star Trek V on this one. Ooh. Let's do okay. it. Okay. Let's do it. One, one two, two, three. three scissors. Again? Really? 
Well, that puts it at 250 out of 314 on our list. All right. And where does this hit on your personal list? This was a really interesting one for me. Before I watched it, it sat in the bottom 3% of my flick chart. It was at 36.93 out of 38.14. After rewatching it, I, I'm not convinced this is the right spot, but this is where it's sitting right now. It's at 13.24, which puts it in the top 35%. Wow. <laughs> and it puts it ahead of Star Trek Three, which I think is the right place in my Star Trek list so far. Well, that's actually, that's actually really interesting. I find that uh, uh, gratifying. I can't tell you right now exactly where mine shows up next to Star Trek Three. just this second. I will. Uh, but mine is at 3.12 on my flick chart out of 996, uh, which is, uh, what does that make it? 31%. Which is right about 31%, which which feels uh, pretty good. Star Trek Three is at 280 uh, on my list. So Star Trek Three still managed to get up there. I, I think it's because I ran into Million Dollar Baby when I ranked it earlier. For me, I really got the, got hung up on the whole idea between the two. I, I The more we thought about the Genesis planet and talked about that in Star Trek 3, yeah. uh, the more frustrated I got. And I just found, I, I also got frustrated by the idea of, you know, the, the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many. And there were issues that I found in Star Trek 3 that I had never had before. And so this time I found like, you know, Star Trek V has a much more compelling story going for it. It's, it has a lot more problems, but I think the strengths of it for me outweigh the strengths of Star Trek III. Yeah, I can I can see that. How this uh, land on your letterboxed uh, review, letterboxd.com slash the next reel? I gave it three stars, which is the same ranking that I actually gave to Star Trek III. Um, they're just really close, I guess. Yeah, it's a three star for me too. And I liked it. Yeah, definitely a like. Definitely a like. And, and I think... I, I don't know that I'm necessarily going to become a, a, a you know ardent supporter of everybody needs to watch this film before they watch the others, but it, it is it, like you said, it's not the lowest of my Star Trek movies. Uh, what are we doing? Uh, where do we go from here? Well, we are going to be uh, jumping to the next one, Star Trek <laughs> Six. <laughs> yeah, this is a uh, this one came out um, uh, two years later, 1991. Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, and um, the, the official last film of the original uh, team. Well, I really look yeah. forward to that. I do, too. And for those of you who are Patreon subscribers, you'll be able to tune in to our Saturday matinee this weekend as we do our lists of our three favorite uh, cult films, or not cult films, films featuring cults, I should say. Yes, charismatic cult leaders, cult <laughs> yes, very different. Very different. We'll just call them cult films for now. There Let you, you discover that uh, as we go forward. <laughs> uh, I, I'll tell you, Andy, I, I'm really glad we did this movie. I was nervous going in, uh, but I feel much better now because you know when the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Nero says, why bother with this movie? In his one-star review, this DVD case measures three quarters of an inch thick compared to the standard half an inch thick. Whoa. 
This movie is a joke. It really is just a complete parody of itself. They basically journey to the Great Barrier at the center of the universe to visit God. This movie should have been handled so much better than this. There is no pride in this movie. The beginning of the movie where Kirk, Spock, and Bones are singing around a campfire sets the tone for this piss-poor excuse of a Star Trek movie. I don't remember why I bought this movie. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's a joke. I don't remember why. But the I think the the really critical perspective is is centers really around the DVD case. I don't understand that. I think that's a brilliant little uh, addition, though. We should, dig, to, we should dig in on that. Yeah, Give you more. I changed mine, Pete. Oh, dear. <laughs> surprise, surprise. I'm doing a two-star by Lola Jones. Oh, excellent. Who says, who says, odd-numbered Trek movies. If you are a Trekkie, you won't like this movie. But you'll maybe watch it because it's free. Surf the web while you're watching or doing some other distracting activity, and you may make it to the end. Oh, a little okay. bit of advice from Lola. There's some Jones. shopping advice on how to <laughs> how to, to best take in the movie. I like it, I and like how to it. watch it that. because it's free. You yeah. got to watch it when it's free. Sure. Otherwise, don't bother. Sure, you do, Lola. Sure, you do. Thanks. I got a bagel with Nutella. It's got my name all over it. Oh, God. Sounds awful. I love Nutella. I love bagels, but blending them together. What else would you possibly put Nutella on? What do you put Nutella on? I, I put it on a crepe with uh, bananas. And or that on is toast. also good. And toast is... What is the difference between toast and a bagel? <laughs> Bagel's boiled. What? What? Uh, yeah, you boil a bagel. That's how it's they make a, bagels. It's a... I know how you make, of course I know how you make a bagel. Andy, once you put it in the toaster, it's just toasted bread. Oh. It's like a, it's like a donut, which has been boiled in oil, also bread. Mm-hmm. I would put Nutella on a donut. Would you? You'd also put bacon on a donut. I would do that too. I know it's because I haven't eaten today, but you are making me really mad right now. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. 
If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.